The Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast is brought to you by Higher Gravity, a craft beer bar located in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the North Side and Blue Ash neighborhoods. And I don't know about you, Mike, but this is my go-to bar. It's my walking distance bar. It's the best selection of beer in the city bar. It is the mug club bar. It is the best draft selection bar. It's the best to-go beer bar. And frankly, the best bartender's bar. I love the one in North Side because... It is a fantastic place. There is a massive amount of beers on tap, a great bottle selection. I love it, man. Hard to find a place that still really loves beer, and they do it. And it's for that reason, we'll see you there. We'll be at the bar. We'll be at the bar. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast. My name is Brett Coleman Baker, brewer at Urban Artifact and host of the Bruce Guys podcast with the one and only, the ineffable Michael Morgan. Mike, how the hell are you? You know, despite what you've heard, Brett, I'm much more effable than you think. (laughs) Honestly, I couldn't define effable and I don't know if I've been using it right all this time. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, out there, I'm quite effable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe I set you up for that. It's good to see you, brother, and crack a beer at the end of this week. Yeah, cheers to that, my friend. We have a wonderful show lined up for us today, and I can't wait. I need to schluff off this bullshit that was this week in the brewery. Schluff off is a great job. <laughs> I didn't even know schluff was a verb. Well, I'm learning from our producer, Adam. He's teaching me a lot of things that I didn't know yeah. were words. Like yeah. spleef? I don't, I don't know. I don't know yeah, what it means still, but up. he says it. He makes things up. He gets really indignant if we act like they're not real words. <laughs> well, let's get the spleef on with this show uh, and talk with our guest today, which is Drew Beecham. If you haven't heard of Drew, he is the Grand Hydrometer of the Maltos Falcons in California, which basically means he is the beer historian for his club, which is important because it's the oldest homebrew club in America. But before we dive right into that, I want to tell you a little bit about what this guy has done because it is a lot. He's written the Everything Homebrewing book, the Everything Hard Cider book, the Homebrewers Journal, Homebrewing All-Stars, Simple Homebrewing, Experimental Homebrewing. He's also written articles for Zymerging Magazine, Craft Beer and Brew magazine and beer advocate and what's most important to us is that the maltose falcons are the first homebrew club in america correct yeah that's right they get started in 1974 on ventura boulevard just outside of la they've got this clubhouse it's in the back of a wine shop because when they get started homebrewing is illegal but winemaking is legal so one of their earliest founders, a guy named John Delmay, had a wine shop, and he starts this this homebrew club in the back of it. So these guys become very influential in several different ways, and one is that person by person in California, they're starting to increase knowledge in beer palates. And that's kind of the small scale, but it also expands, not only from that one person to that person's friends, but the model of the home brew club starts to expand across the United States. The grassroots movement began with them. Right. People starting to understand and get better beer. It starts in large part with these guys at this one clubhouse on Ventura Boulevard. The other way is that They go from being people who are just kind of scofflaws to becoming people that are really influential in changing legislation on a state level in California. Lobbyists that aren't crooked. Lobbyists that actually care about what they lobby for. Can you imagine that? I don't know. (laughs) No, I can't either. (laughs) It's like how America's supposed to work or some shit like that. I don't know. Mr. Smith goes to Washington type thing. A democratic republic for the people, by the people. Yeah, yeah, remember that one? That was a thing. (laughs) Oh, 50 years ago, when I wasn't even born yet. (laughs) Or six or seven, maybe even. (laughs) But in addition to that, they also produce people that really directly help change 
the face of commercial brewing across the United States. And I think that our guest is going to help us better understand all of those things. And on that note, Drew, thank you very much for joining us today. How are you? Well, as you said, it's Friday, and I don't know about y'all, but this week felt like it's taken about two years. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> I will second that and drink a beer to it. <laughs> yeah. Happy Friday, y'all. So, Drew, am I correct that when you guys got started, homebrewing was entirely illegal in the state of California? Is that right? Yeah, because the the rules that, that undid prohibition... They kind of forgot to put, you know, like a home production of wine and beer. They forgot the and beer part when they <laughs> when they made those rules. And so, yeah, you can make wine at home all you wanted, but no beer for you, you rapscallion. So John Dahmer had a wine shop, right? Yeah, he'd, he'd actually, I'm trying to remember his whole story was he got kicked out of medical school at the University of Michigan because he decided that he liked partying more than actually studying. <laughs> I'm familiar and, with the concept. Yeah. Yeah. And he got he got involved with I, I want to say it was uh Oak Barrel up in Berkeley and started to learn how to do the winemaking thing and, and beer making. Moved down to Los Angeles and opened up the shop in nineteen seventy two, which is the reason why we talk about the club possibly being found in nineteen seventy two. Now, what's really amazing is in that whole time, since nineteen seventy two to now, he's moved exactly once. And it was across the street because they were knocking down his original building. <laughs> yeah, and right now John's kind of his shop is attached to another shop, and it's now being surrounded by like these big transit-oriented communities with retail on the ground floor. That's they're all starting to pop up everywhere. So uh, somehow he's a stalwart and has remained there. Let's go back to the very beginning. And whether it's 72, 73, 74, whatever, you exist for a while, some rascallions, some uh, uh, ne'er-do-wells that are breaking the law out there in California. Hooligans. But hooligans. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you transition from hooligans as a club to people that really become meaningfully involved in the process of changing the law on a national level, and even more so on a state level, correct? Oh, yeah. So at the time, and people have to remember, okay, we'd already talked about the federal situation. You know, I forgot Ann Buren, that stupid act. But it was also illegal at the state level because, you know, in a lot of states were just concerned like, well, you know, look, if we make homebrewing legal, it's going to give moonshiners cover to make moonshine, right? Because they can go, well, I'm not making moonshine, I'm just making beer. Um, so that was actually a good portion of the reason that, that states kind of resisted it for a long while. And so back in the day, and this would have been about the efforts really starting in 76 and continuing on through 78, the, the clubs that existed at the time, and particularly in California, it was the work of the Maltos Falcons and another club called the San Andreas Malts, which, uh, unfortunately the San Andreas Malts don't seem to exist anymore, um, those two groups got together and really worked at the state level in Sacramento to sort of kind of push, prod, poke, and nudge the state along to finally making it legal in the state. And so, of course, it was legal in the state for a couple of years before it became legal at the at the federal level. Yeah, kind of not too dissimilar to how things are right now with marijuana. Why did you guys get involved with that? Why did you guys see it as important? And, and what was that battle like? A lot of it was just due to people wanting to be able to brew without having to worry about like, you know, the cops coming in and busting them because there were reports of, of people. Uh, people have to remember that the homebrewing was not legal in every state in this country until I want to say it was around 2012. So it was quite a long, uh, quite a long struggle to get legalized in all the states. And M Mississippi, Mississippi is 2013 because they're a, they're a, they're a leader. <laughs> yeah. So Mississippi was the last one in 2013 and Alabama was at about the same time or 2012. But in just before homebrewing was legalized in Alabama, a couple of homebrewers got arrested because cops got called to their house at some point and they found all the homebrewing equipment in the garage. So here in California, some of it was that. And some of it was also just this idea of, hey, we want respect for what we do. Why can winemakers do this and we can't? You know, um, and also we're not moonshiners. If you actually look at like what it, it, so that's what happened in California. And then there was a lot of push at the federal level, because what a lot of people forget is, okay, one, homebrewing was legalized by via one of these giant omnibus bills 
that Jimmy Carter signed that had like budget and transportation stuff and this, that, and the other. And oh yeah, by this one little thing about homebrewing. Um, but that ended up in a bill via the efforts of um, uh, Senator Cranston, who later became famous for the S&M scandal. Or sorry, the, the S&M. L scandal, S and M something different. Um, it's a much more interesting scandal. But <laughs> Senator Cranston, yeah. hit me, please. Yeah, but 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 not but not as rich. Um, but uh, Kranz, uh, but what people didn't know at the time was that there were two competing bills happening at the same time. There was the Cranston bill and the Conable bill uh, for Senator Conable, and the one that eventually went forward was Cranston. The Conable bill was filled with all this inf- sort of input from the ATF at the time, who again were worried that moonshiners were going to use homebrewing as a legal cover. And so there were things about like, you have to get a license. You have to be inspected by the, by the federal authorities or the state uh, at any time, you know, surprise inspections. You're exempt for, you know, paying taxes on your beer up to a certain limit. And after that, you have to pay taxes. And it was something like 50 gallons. It was, it, the, the Conable bill was a much, much more restrictive thing. And so a big part of the fight, and you can even see it in our newsletters at the time, was getting people to really push what Alan Cranston was trying to push forward. And fortunately, that's actually what ended up going into the, the omnibus bill. Then once the legal hurdles were taken care of, at least in California and the U.S., you really transition into education and turning people on to good beer. Yeah, and actually that was I think was one of the biggest early fights was really two things. You had the reputation for homebrewers, and of course homebrewers have been around forever and a dang day. Uh, one of my favorite authors, H.L. Minkin, used to trade notes about his making homebrew. Um, Andres Thompson had a very famous photo of him with a carboy of beer in a New York City apartment. <laughs> um, but homebrewers had a reputation of being sort of cheapskate alcoholics who just wanted a way to justify their drinking and save money on their beer. Well, that's how I started in college, so I get it. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I, my very first batch of beer that I made was in, what is that, like 1992 when I was a freshman in college because, hey, I'm a science nerd. I can do this, and it's beer. Um, how was it, Drew? Second ba- how was that first batch? First batch was actually okay. Wow. Second batch, we do not talk about but uh, yeah, so uh, like the first, there were really kind of a couple of things that the club had to fight in terms of education. One, homebrewers aren't these these ne'er do wells who are just looking to get drunk. Um, we're people who are passionate about the subject of beer, and two, beer is a subject that you can be passionate about and deserves as much time and study as wine. You know, everybody took wine seriously. Oh yeah, sure. You know, well unless you were drinking Blue Nun and Reuniti, but I mean people take wine seriously. It has that cachet. So really it was kind of two fronts that a lot of the education was being fought on was one homebrewing is a, is a good thing to do. It's a good thing to explore and we're not just worthless people. Uh, And two, there's a reason that we're passionate about it and you should be too. That's a really nice way to say we're a bunch of dorks. Yeah, it's very coded right into the middle of all that. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will never deny that, you know. No, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's hard not to be a dork and get into homebrewing. It's just a fun, wonderful hobby that you can get as weird with as you want. And, I, you know. It's, it's science magic. It is. Yes, that's a good, that's a great way to put it. It's science magic. And uh, I think what's really interesting about the time frame in the late, mid to late 70s, too, is that. Uh, there is no good beer then. There is no choice. There is basically nothing. It was either homebrew something tasty or just different or have the same thing from somewhere else. So the fact that you had to focus so hard on education not only helped you guys draw more people in, but it had the side effect of making the craft beer industry possible. Yeah, you, you stop and you think about it. So in the 70s, really you had Fritz with Anchor, right? I'll, I'll bow down to, to Fritz and keeping Anchor alive. You had New Albion, which was really sort of the prototype for what was going to come and where, where we're kind of currently at. And then at the very end, Sierra Nevada and Burt Grant. And that was it. I mean, everything else was basically granddad beer or dad beer or 
Pabst knockoffs or something like that. And, and McAuliffe um, of Albion started home brewing in England. Well, and that's actually, if I remember correctly, he was a Navy vet, right? Correct. So if you look at how homebrewing gets started here in the U.S., it is one of the weirdest things I think I've ever seen. It's cats and dogs living together because <laughs> about half the homebrewers were ex-military guys who had discovered good beer while being stationed in Germany or the U.K. or someplace else in Europe. And then the other half were all these sort of hippy-dippy, crunchy, granola Mother Earth types. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of agreed that, hey, no, we can come together on this. And you see it in the industry. You see it with Jack. But then you go look at the Grossmans. The Grossmans are a bunch of hippies. Um, you go, and, and, you know, Rogue was, you know, a bunch of hippies. You see this all over the place. And it's just really funny to see, like, that dichotomy in action and producing everything there. And you even see it in the homebrew club in the Falcons. There's a, a photo that we have on our website and it's a photo of a group of our original founders. And you see like of the people who are pictured, half of them look like very straight laced ex military or, you know, engineering types, uh, except for the fact that Merlin is wearing a pickle haba. Um, and the other half looked like they just stepped off the love train. Yeah, I we we were we were we were we were looking at that picture uh, right before we started to record. Actually, it is uh, it, it definitely looks like the seventies, <laughs> and it is and it is definitely yeah it is definitely a, a mixture of people. Is craft beer the last industry that's bipartisan? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> it kind of like I said, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> and what came out was great beer. What came out was a, 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 a is one of the few manufacturing industries left in America. Well, and one of the few that where all the growth has been on that sort of very niched level. I mean, even even our largest craft brewers, like even Sierra Nevada, for instance, or if you go by the BA's definitions, Yingling, um, <laughs> even those guys make a drop in the bucket compared to like what you find out of AB InBev or Miller Coors. Um, but all the growth is down there. Whereas like the, the big beer company sales have stagnated until they got into the seltzer game. So it's very, very interesting that we're seeing sort of a, a I don't really want to say locavorism because that's sort of a weird term that doesn't really apply, but we are seeing that, that really large, locally driven interest that happens in craft beer as opposed to a lot of other industries. Now, is that something that you think was pushed through the educational uh, drive of the early homebrew clubs? Yeah, I, I, I really do. Because again, thinking back to the seventies, like every beer that you knew was basically, you know, Oh, that's yellow and fizzy and cold. That's good. Uh, except for the occasional uh, spring releases of Bach beer, which, of course, as everybody knew at the time, well, that was when the breweries were cleaning out their tanks every spring. <laughs> yeah, the bottom and, of the and, barrel. And, and the Bach, yeah, it's the thick, yeah. gross and the, stuff. And the Bach was just made out of the sludge, yeah. <laughs> uh, talk about another story that continues to live. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we got, I got some sludge I mean, I, stories I, for you that we can share offline. <laughs> not, not, not true to listeners. <laughs> no. No, not not even close. But to, to Americans who were used to that sort of pale yellow beer, being confronted with a beer that actually had like some color and some malt flavor to it, made it kind of feel thick and syrupy compared to what they knew. And so, yeah, given that that was sort of the the base of where we were in the 1970s, homebrew clubs leading to the founding of these breweries led to all this education. I mean. It's really been interesting. When I started in the hobby, which was in 1999, a lot of the early work that I did when I was talking to people was doing that sort of educational stuff, talking about, oh, well, you know, this is what an IPA is. This is what's a porter. This is what's a stout. And that used to be a conversation I had a lot. I had a lot of like teaching people that. And these days, it's not that now. It's literally digging into, oh, the beer equivalent of, oh, well, that's what this particular wine label means when it's talking about an appellation from Bordeaux and it's this grape. You know, the, the beer conversations have shifted into that direction, which is nice, I think. Yeah, and, and that education even, I mean, it's amazing how 
if we go back as far as the late seventies, we have talked to Ken Grossman. We had the pleasure to interview Ken and fascinating guy. We really kind of reached the conclusion with Ken that Ken is in a way, Sierra Nevada pale ale is in a way the first real American beer, American craft beer. Because it's the first time, it's not the first one that's made. I mean, Fritz came before and Jack McAuliffe came before. But for the first time with Sierra Nevada, you're seeing a beer that's using these new hops that are being grown in the West Coast. And, you know, you're seeing this uh, style of beer that is, um, you know, it's traditional. It's a pale ale. Uh, in terms of technical style, but it's uh, different in, in the sense that it's hopped way above and way crazier than you're ever going to see come out of an English pale. So it, it's there's this com- there seems to be this combination of things that are happening, you know, in the late '70s, the early '80s, where you're seeing education combine with invention and creation and sort of a development of a new American style. So by the time you get to 1999, when you start to brew, we're still going through that process of sort of, I think, defining what constitutes not only, I mean, we know what constitutes traditional beer styles, and I think that you have to start with that to understand beer, to understand how to enjoy it, to like it, to make it. But you, we're also kind of still working on what, what's an American beer. Is that, 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 that's my theory. That's a bunch of bullshit that I just made up, is what I'm saying. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's, it's good, but I, yeah, stop and think about it. Like back when Sierra Nevada was starting, the new hype hop was Cascade. Right. Uh, and that Radical. Was, that was brand... Uh, I know, and it really was. I'd argue it's still uh, the only uh, hop that matters. <laughs> oh, well, no, not these days. I mean, come on. Don't you know every IPA has to have some sort of combination of Citra, Galaxy, and Mosaic in it? Yeah, that's true. Cascade's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Cascade's my fave, old man Brit. There you go. Hey, there's nothing wrong with a good Cascade beer. Uh, you know what I think is interesting on... The back of that, Mike, is that, uh, you know, you say it's the first American style, but, I, you know, I argue that American lager is the original craft beer, the American craft beer. And it was so good and it exuded so much American exceptionalism at the time that it literally just beat everything out and just dominated the way it did. I'd argue that it's, it's, a, it's the same thing. It's just, it was the IPA of then, and then it dominated, and then it helped that Prohibition just yeah. cut everything else then, out. Then Prohibition just destroyed everything. And then that was the only thing to make it through to the other side. If we had Prohibition next year, the only thing that's going to make it through five years later is going to be IPA. Everything else is going to go away. So if anything, I'd say American craft beer existed before Prohibition. It created the American lager. Everything else got killed off. American lager... <laughs> came back after Prohibition and then just beat everything to a pulp. And then monopolies and bullshit business practices of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s crushed everything. And then there was basically what became the American Light Lager turned into a blank canvas that got created into the the American Pale Ale. And then from there, boom, through the education of the Maltese Falcons and everything else, so anyway, I just the, wanted the, to match pal- bullshit with palette. bullshit the, here. The palette gets gets broader. Well, it's wider. Yes, yes. Well, I think the big thing is that very much craft beer and homebrewing is still very much in line with a lot of the response that we saw in the food market to the sort of the homogenization and blanditization of food. You know, so like where the 1950s suddenly it was like the height of luxury to have a hungry man dinner, but everything kind of just tasted bland and salty. Um, that's very much what happened. I'm a hungry with... man, not a tasty man, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, that's exactly the same thing that happened with those those big breweries. I mean, the, the American Light Lager started as a response to the fact that American barley was crap and they needed to figure a way to make clear, tasty beer out of it. And that's how that starts. And then, yeah, you're right. It, it, it then evolves post-World War II to, you know, like, well, it is now pablum, just like the rest of our food stuff. And then, then we, when we get into the 70s, people go, you know, that's kind of boring. Can we do something different? 
you have two different things that's going on with early craft beer. And you've brought both of them up. The first is that, at least for a while, I don't know that it's even still true today after you're done with the equipment and supplies, but, you know, home brewing was a way to um, drink cheaply. You know, it was like prison wine, right? I mean, you could make, it wasn't necessarily good, but it was cheap. <laughs> but then, you know, there's also the, the striving for we can do better. We can make better beers. We can make beers that are more like traditional European styles that are more flavorful. How do you think that whole thing starts to emerge? What does it mean? And, and how does it help kind of change commercial brewing? Yeah, so I think the way it changed is very largely, I mean, so you had sort of this, the return to earth, you know, do things yourself sort of ethos of a lot of the hippie movement. And that's part of it. But where I think where you're getting to where the quality comes in is into those ex-military guys. Because in the Falcons, what I can see when I look back through the newsletters, and I have scanned newsletters that go back to 1977, um, the very first ones are all written by Merlin. And Merlin Elhart was the founder of the club. He was ex-military, worked as an electrician here, a lineman uh, here in L.A. And he really loved those German loggers that he had while he was stationed in Germany. And if you read those early newsletters when he's the one writing everything, you can tell he's taking this very, very seriously. He's drawing in by hand into something that's going to be mimeographed. Everybody remember Ditto Machines? Yep. I have uh, no idea what any of those words are you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I do, Drew. But he's hand, he's, hand, he's hand drawing on these documents, you know, like starch trees to demonstrate how amylopectin and amylase work you know, and, and all the different starch forms. He's talking about temperature graphs and showing like how to do a nomograph and, and how to actually track. So even back then bringing that precision in, which is, of course, very Germanic in a way, right? This is what beer is. But bringing that in and actually sort of enforcing that sort of idea, no, we can take this very seriously and we do this quality. And you see that continuing on in those newsletters. After Merlin had passed away, other people picking up the mantle of like, okay, well, let's try and understand some of the science, going and looking at the professional resources that are out there, people coming into the club. It was always hyped when new members joined the club and they were microbiologists because at the time, the dried yeast that we had our hands on were terrible. And they were, they were contaminated with lactobacillus and pediococcus damnosis, which, by the way, is also one of my favorite things to ever say in terms of a microbe. Pediococcus damnosis. Um, well, there's two but, curse words in there. It's great. I know, right? And they, they, these microbiologists came in and they started running a yeast bank in our club. So we'd have pure strains of yeast. And we see that going on where even now, like there was a very famous uh, yeast company called Brewtech that was started by one of our one of our members, uh, Dr. Mary Beth Rains. And she's put out like all these wonderful scientific papers that to help people understand, like, this is what you do to, to actually make good beer. And so it was really interesting to see all that stuff early on. And I think that's where that that genesis of this doesn't have to suck. This doesn't just have to be you know, some malt extract and some sugar that you boiled and threw into a crock pot, dumped some fresh yeast into and covered with cheesecloth, like what my grandfather used to make. Uh, my mom always complained that her clothes when she was in high school smelled like yeast. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be that. It can actually be something good and drinkable and something enjoyable and something worth trying to iterate on to make even better. Um, so I think a lot of that comes from that push-pull of let's be creative, let's be fun, let's do things ourselves and kind of return back to our roots that you get from the hippie side of things. And then that very sort of military-esque precision and no, we got to make this better. How do we do this better? Well, that's a, a good lesson learned for any would-be brewers too is that you can do anything you want as far as malt and hops go. If you nail that micro and that yeast fermentation, you're going to get a good beer, even if your hops or malt is some extract uh, and out of a can pre-mixed stuff. You can make decent beer with good yeast. Oh, well, I always tell people that healthy, vital yeast covers up a lot of homebrewer sins. 
It covers up a lot of professional brewer sins as well, <laughs> which this is, true. is a really good transition in that. How do you think this tie of home brewer to pro brewer, especially through the Maltoist Falcons, how do you think this pipeline of home brewer to pro brewer really got going? Um, do you think it's because of the education work you guys were doing? Do you think the market was just exploding and people thought there was an easy dollar? Do you think it's just the passion that homebrewers share? Was it something else? Oh, you, you can never combine the words a brewery and an easy dollar together. <laughs> the, that, those just don't exist. No, I mean, I think, uh, take uh, the Grossmans. So uh, Ken and Steve Grossman, uh, Steve and Paul, who was one of the co-founders of Sierra Nevada, were both members of the Falcons, and they both started learning how to homebrew uh, from our store. And in fact, they were uh, all three of them were brewing well before they were of age, because it turns out you can sell ingredients to people who aren't of age. Just don't <laughs> combine these together and make beer. <laughs> um, and so they got they got their start doing that, and then Ken kind of took that DIY, you know, return to your roots ethos, and opened up a homebrew shop. Now he was very sort of weird in this way, but what we do then see is that all through the uh, particularly the 80s and whatnot, you will see a lot of guys who came into the club and also some women who came into the club then going, oh, well, I can do this. And they founded a whole number of breweries or they became brewers at other breweries. So like uh, Alaskan, um, you know, famous for their smoked porter, right? Yeah. And very, very old, very old for an American craft brewery. Oh, absolutely. But one of their first brewers was John Mayer. And John Mayer was a falcon. Uh, in fact, I, the last time I saw John, he was still rocking his banana yellow Maltos Falcons t-shirt. <laughs> and then John, you know, John became a brewer at, at Alaska and then later left to help found Rogue. And that's where he stayed that whole time. So we we see a lot of these early brewers, early home brewers getting that, that itch and doing what I think every home brewer does at some point in time until they actually talk sense to themselves, which is, well, you know, this is a really great hobby and I'm really good at this and I really like doing this. I should do this for a living. Right. <laughs> which, so we, which usually turns out poorly, but not always. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good way to kill your passion in a hobby, it turns out. All your guidance counselors lied to you when they said, uh, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've found that. I mean, I've run several beer festivals, and I've discovered that one of the dumbest things you can possibly do is turn the thing that you love to do into a job. It... <laughs> It takes all the joy out of it. <laughs> it, it, it does, because it turns out that as much fun as it is at being at like a brewery or a beer festival, when it's actually your name on the line or your license or your dollars on the line, uh, suddenly it becomes a lot more serious and right. serious just isn't as much fun. Right, <laughs> exactly. But you do care. You do care. And, and it does. Oh, absolutely. And the, and the Falcons have helped uh, produce... You know, a lot of uh, a lot of people have wound up in breweries, right? I mean, the fact I mean, if you just if you could if you stopped at the Grossmans, that's important, but um, it doesn't stop there, right? No, you got like uh, folks like uh, well, I had mentioned John Mayer, right. for instance, right? Uh, you know, hard to get bigger than that. You had uh, Rodney Morris who did a whole bunch of stuff around the country for homebrewing, and then actually eventually became a cheesemaker. Which I thought was interesting. <laughs> Fritz Maytag. Yeah, Fritz uh, Maytag is doing that now. It's making yeah, cheese. Uh, hey, why not? Yeah. But you got like, um, there, I mean, in the in, particularly in the eighties and the nineties, there's like a giant list of people who went into the into the craft brewing world, and I mean, they're from breweries that are small, breweries that are large, breweries that oddly enough, or unsurprisingly enough, let's put it that way, don't exist anymore because it turns out brewing's hard and keeping a business open is hard, but. Um, like here in Los Angeles, we still kind of defensively homebrewed, you know, like, cause we didn't really have a lot of breweries here until about 2009. And in 2009, we saw three new breweries open all, all right around each other. Smog city, uh, lady face and, uh, my, my good friends at Eagle Rock homebrewing or sorry, Eagle Rock brewing. Um, and all three of those breweries opened by homebrewers and all three of those breweries helped then turn around and kick off a wave of breweries that have opened here in LA. I think we're now somewhere north of 95 in a little over a decade. 
To me, that's a little bit odd because here in Cincinnati, we are as a vastly smaller city. We're somewhere around 80 at this point. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of weird to me that California is really the birthplace of the American craft beer movement. But L.A. and even and San Diego, very well known now for craft as well. But, but both L.A. and San Diego seem to be kind of oddly late to the game to me for, for sort of being ground zero. Well, I wouldn't include San Diego in there because San Diego has had a lot of breweries for a long period of time. I just remember when I started homebrewing here in California in L.A., I looked and I went, okay, you got good breweries in San Diego. You got good breweries in San Francisco. You got good breweries in, in Portland. You got good breweries in Seattle. What are we doing wrong? Every major metropolitan area on the West Coast except for us. Um, and really, I think it came down to a, a number of factors, one of which was uh, there's a lot of driving you have to do here in L.A., Real estate is really expensive, and breweries don't make that much in terms of margins. And then also, I think there was a sort of a snobbery, and L.A. was kind of more of a wine and cocktail town. Yeah. And a cheap beer town. You know, because, of course, we have our Budweiser plant over there in Van Nuys. We had what used to be a Miller plant over in Irwindale. We had lots of good, cheap beer here. And I think the thing that finally turned it was you always had the... the access to good beer because you had places like the stuff sandwich in San Gabriel, lucky Baldwin's here in Pasadena and very importantly, uh, father's office over in Santa Monica, all three of those places since basically the seventies and the eighties had always been stocking good craft beer, but we didn't have our own. And I think what finally turned the tide because you need the money in order to open these places was when Sang Yoon took over father's office and turned it into a gastropub and suddenly started making hand money hand over fist, opening up multiple locations. And the people with money here in L.A. finally like, oh, you can make money off of beer. This is a great idea. And so we actually kind of went backwards. We started with the gastropubs and then that launched breweries. That's interesting. It's very weird. That's interesting. Yeah. So California can is kind of even its own... Um, it's kind of a, an example of what's gone, what has gone on in America in terms of how we see pockets across the country that, that, don't, always, mm-hmm. that don't always seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, that, you know, you can have a really good craft beer scene and craft beer city that takes off quickly and it can be surrounded by uh, a, a lot of nothing. You know, it still seems to be we're, we're now a, a country with over 9000 craft breweries, but it still seems to be really spotty. You know, we're, we're kind of divided as divided as we are politically as a country. We almost seem to be similarly divided in terms of where you can and can't get a decent beer. Well, and, and a lot of that does actually come down to local government. So even if you look here in, in L.A. and talking with friends who have opened up places, um. If you try to open up a, a place in, L- in L.A. proper, like within the city limits, it's a giant pain in the ass because this is a large city and there's bureaucracy that goes with it. And plus, there's also this very weird history in L.A. about not trusting places with booze. But if you go and you look at like where all the breweries are located in, in Los Angeles, there's a good number of them down along the coastline in, in the South Bay area is what, what we call it, but particularly around the city of Torrance. And that's because the city of Torrance woke up one day when Smog City opened up and went, oh, hey, these guys are an industrial thing. They make money, extra taxes. Let's make it easy to open up a brewery here. It's exactly what San Diego County did, too. San Diego County launched brewery incubator programs to make it easier to open up a brewery because breweries, as it turns out, activate spaces like with actual pedestrian traffic and bringing people into an area that may otherwise be dead and also provide a good revenue and an anchor point for additional entertainment options. Um, I was just talking with my, my partner, Denny Khan the other day, and he lives up in uh, Eugene, Oregon, and they have a whole district that's just dedicated to fermentation. Wow. And so, and so I think what you're seeing is a lot of times where it's, you get these sort of dull pockets where there's nothing or very little a lot of it has to do with just how much encouragement there is from the local government to be able to open up those places. Because I think no matter where you go, 
thanks in large part to the enthusiasm of homebrewers, there's always that one dude somewhere who's like, I want to open my own place. Even though I'm sitting there waving the, the waving the red flags going, don't do it, don't do it. You know, <laughs> there's always going to be somebody. And it's just whether or not you can actually open up a place. A good example is here in Pasadena, where I live. Pasadena is its own city government. We have two breweries and we're about to have a third open up, but it's been a forever process for anybody to be able, be able to open up, even though we have a large entertainment district, even though we have a parade that everybody knows about, and even though you know we're a city of about 250,000. So it really goes back to kind of where we started here. I think that there's, we see this pattern that starts in the 70s, but it still continues. And it's this combination mm-hmm. of education. And it's also a lot of uh, kind of tedious, wonkish legality. I mean, you, you have to, um, and I've dealt with that even, I mean, here in Cincinnati where the brewing scene is, is really good, the zoning code hasn't really caught up to it. They just make exceptions. Yeah. I mean, I, I dealt with, uh, I represented somebody that wanted to open a, a nano brewery a while back. And I, they were going to make some really tiny amount of beer and sell it in this bar. But the zoning code still says that that's an industrial operation. You know, it's not, it's a bar, you know, wake up. It's a bar. They make a little bit of beer in the back. But... You have to have the law and and you have to have the the political structure and the legal structure. It has to be consistent and it has to catch up with where um, the business is going. But you also have to have the consumer that understands the beer and wants the beer. And and that I mean, even if it, if it to me, like with home brewing, is the key to home brewing that the majority of people that are home brewers become spectacular brewers and open their own brewery? Absolutely not. You know, I think what's more important about it, that happens, but what's more important is that it spreads the word and the education of, of what beer is. It turns on the consumer. Well, and it makes for very passionate advocates. Right, right. Yes, because, I mean, I, I knew a lot about, I mean, I knew a lot, I thought, about beer before I started brewing at home. And then it was like when I started brewing at home, I went, oh, I really know nothing and I know a lot of myths. Um, and by becoming this brewer at home, yeah, it really activated my passion for it and my understanding and my unfortunate tendency to talk about it to the point where my coworkers said, no, no, Drew, you can only talk about beer once per day. <laughs> <laughs> and we're timing it. <laughs> exactly. But no, you're you're absolutely right. You need you need passionate consumers. But here's the one of the weirdest things that that I realized, uh, looking at the recent members of our club, like the people who've been joining in the past few years, is when I was a kid, and when I first went to college in '92, craft beer was something unusual, and it was something you had to seek out, and it was usually like something that went, oh hey, that's on special th- this week at the package store. Let's go have some of that. That tastes weird. Um, craft beer wasn't something that you could could expect and and the fact i was going to school in boston meant well once i got my taste for it well at least i could always find guinness and i could always find sam adams on tap and that was just something i knew it was like if i was going to go to a bar more than likely i'd have to hunt for some sort of beer option folks today like particularly the generation people who are now in their 20s they've never had that problem like the idea of having good beer, beer with flavor, has just always been background radiation. Well, the problem... It's always been... The problem for that generation is that it's their dad's drink, and it's not cool anymore. It's not an issue of of scarcity. It's an issue of just straight coolness, in in my opinion. Well, which is, I think, part of the reason why we start to see the rise of things like, say, pastry stout, or we start to see all the, the hazy IPAs, for instance, and all that hype market... I think whoever in the brewing industry first really started to take lessons from how the sneaker game works, you know, in terms of building mm. hype and getting people's passion with it, whoever that person is probably should be simultaneously given a medal and taken out back and shot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was going to say, so we have the sneaker industry to blame for this. Good. That's good. I, I will at least hire. definitely well, agree with the second part of that. 
Uh, <laughs> well, I, mean, I just, I, I see parallels in it. it it's just yeah. funny to me to see how that both of those are very hype driven things. And both of the, both of those hype driven markets are a thing I don't understand. But then again, I'm kind of of the wrong generation to get that now. Yeah, I'll say, I'll tell you what, <clears throat> I wish there was a little bit more, uh, co-mingling of home brewing and pro brewing. There was, uh, it seems like things have kind of, it's, it's not, it's, it's not we brew what we want to brew anymore, like Founders Old Saying, or we brew what is good. It's we brew what needs to bring in money, uh, which is often very short-sighted. And, uh, it, it, you know, you saying what you just said reminds me of a story that I feel very proud of uh, back in my homebrewing days in uh, the late 2010 or early 2010s, late, late aughts, I was at a homebrew uh, festival and Dick, Cant Dick Cantwell of Elysian, before he got bought out or sold, stopped by and tried our homebrew booth's beer. He tried my beer in particular and it was a sour Maybach and he was genuinely excited about it and asked me questions. And we had a five minute conversation about brewing beer and innovation around sour beers and what is possible. And it is just something that will never not leave, uh, not be with me. And I, I, I wish there was more of that because it's, it's, it's just great. It's what I love about this industry is having those conversations with people who share different viewpoints, like you were saying earlier. Well, and one, I would argue that Dick Cantwell would tell you that he got uh, bought out. Uh, he did not sell out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, I, you know, it's one of these weird things where there's a lot of professional brewers now who, when you say, hey, I'm a home brewer, they kind of sigh and roll their eyes because they've gotten used to like the dude who comes in and goes, oh, well, you know, I'm something of a brewer myself. And, <laughs> and, you know, really, I think, really, I think you should do X to Y to Z with your beer because, I mean, I, this has this off flavor. Uh, so very important lesson for homebrewers in general. If you're going into a brewery, follow the great rule of the internet, which is don't be a dick. <laughs> yeah, Drew, that is absolutely the case. Uh, words to live by if I've ever heard them myself, which I don't know. Being with Mike, I hear words a lot. I don't know how I many I tell you of them. to not be a dick all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I try to listen. It's hard. But on that note, if you are ever in Cincinnati, Please stop by the tap room or a, the local dive bar of your choice. We'll have two, three, four, five, seven, eight. If there's one thing we know how to do, Drew, it's get you drunk in Cincinnati. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, Cincinnati is a great town, so it's always, always a welcome idea. Thanks, Drew. That was a great interview, and I can't wait to break it down. But before we do that, let's hear a word from the people that help make this podcast happen. And that actually includes you out there listening. So don't forget to like and subscribe because it does matter. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you in part by Beachwood Audio. Beachwood Audio provides sound acquisition, post, and design services for individual, corporate, and commercial clients. For more information, contact Adam at soundfilmvideo.com. Mike, what I found most illuminating about this whole situation is the fact that the Maltos Falcons was basically, I mean, it's AAA baseball. It was a right. pipeline to pro brewing like I never knew existed before. Yeah, direct in, in so many ways. I, I kind of got the indirect aspects, but I didn't fully appreciate how many people actually came directly out of the Maltos Falcons and helped change beer. They they not only helped change beer, they were the change. You're right. They yeah. they are they they were able to produce people with the knowledge that they needed to spend literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, on making good beer for America. Yeah, and you look at uh, John Mayer, also a member of the Falcons. He goes to start the uh, Alaska Brewery. Those guys start in 1986. They still make... We have sat here in the studio and, and drank their smoked porter, Still a really beer. good beer, you know, especially in the winter. I mean, that's a delicious beer. But he starts the Alaska Brewery. He then goes in 86. He then goes to start Rogue in 1988. And Rogue, also incredibly influential. Yes. Highly. Uh, 
You know, it really reminds me of everything that I appreciate about not only, you know, uh, grade school education and sports, but just the, the fact that you need to teach people early. You need to make a pipeline. That, right. That's the point here. Like, that's what makes football in America so wonderful. It's because in grade school, we're like, hey, kids, you want to play football? Here's a bunch of resources to do it. Hey, you want to do this sport or that sport? Here's a huge pipeline that you can spend your whole life getting into. So by the time you're an adult and of age to be on your own, you're going to be awesome at it. And that's what basically homebrewing was. It's like, Instead of starting, though, when you're six or whatever, you start when you're 21 because obviously that's the legal age and no sooner should you homebrew. Wink, well, wink. Right, but I mean, Grossman was uh, starting before then. And, you know, right. there's... Well, you can legally make beer and we have had some of those people locally, actually, you know, that are, are commercial brewers that started making beer when they were minors with parental consent. Um, I remember being deep in the coal mines of Appalachia making my first homebrew batch. <laughs> was that how it started? You well, were, yeah, I was also you a miner. coal miners. Uh... <laughs> I was also a miner. <laughs> but, you know, from the pipeline, what I also found was really interesting was this juxtaposition of who homebrewers were. And it caused me to start to think about kind of the mixture of who craft brewers are that we know today. I mean, even on a regional basis, there is this craft beer has taken up this kind of largely liberal kind of. Um, it's taken a socially hipster. liberal bent for sure. It's taken a socially liberal bent, but that does not classify everybody that is actually running a craft brewery. Well, that's the beauty of home brewing and brewing's history is that modern history at least is that it was this huge cross-section of america it was engineers it was military brats it was hippies it was yuppies it was anybody who just somehow for some reason or other got a taste for good tasting food and drink whether right. you traveled over to germany and you're stationed there and you had hellas and it blew your brain hole out whether you went to europe on your uh, summer, you know, staycation or, or yeah. whatever Back gap year, crossed it and spoke a bunch of weed. Yeah, and then you got your mind blown, or whether you were just a hippie in the middle of nowhere, California, and your mom was just crunchy as shit in the fifties, which is just <laughs> weird because it was the fifties and everybody was moving against that. But you had that in your brain that things can taste good and beer should also taste good. It brought people together. And to me, what is truly amazing about that is not only in today's polarized America, where you can hardly even find anything that is cross aisle quote unquote of pulling people together it's one of the things in my life that i can point to and be like that is democracy these people had a belief that this was the thing the right thing for our country the right thing for our people and this shouldn't be illegal get out of my way let me make homebrew and they pushed for it and they did it and it's wonderful it, it was a time when we could agree on the need uh, to change the system, and, and, and we could learn from each other, even if we had fundamental disagreements. I mean, that, that combination of, of military people and hippies, I mean, we look at, like, McAuliffe uh, was ex-military, and he learned to homebrew in England, and Fritz Maytag, Definitely not a hippie. Look, I don't know Fritz, but he definitely kicked a hippie in San Francisco before. He, yeah, <laughs> He's absolutely <laughs> kicked a hippie in the 70s in San Francisco. He might have done it last week. <laughs> I think but, he verbally kicked me multiple times. <laughs> he did. I loved it. <laughs> I mean, me too. Kick me more, Daddy. <laughs> so th this combination, I mean... Beer is this combination of science and art. And I have learned from you better than anybody, I think, that there can be both of those aspects in a great beer. But if your beer is just art, then it's random and it's probably shit. Uh, and if it's just science... Soulless. Yeah, it can be great, but it's soulless. So you need both of those things, and that really is... That's American beer, man. It, it, it's that combination of hippies and engineers and, um, you know, math and science 
people and military people, precision people. That's kind combined. of America. It's drive yeah. and irreverence mixed together. It's yeah. independent mixed with American ingenuity. It is what I love about America is the manufacturing spirit. And it's what I hate so much about modern America is that we we devalue that so much in a way that it's just disheartening. What yeah, what making things. Yes, let's own yeah. what we do because that is great. And I'm not saying anything nationalist or any other stupid shit. What I'm just saying is that there is something special about having American craft beer made by Americans with what makes us America. And that's right. also why I love Belgian beer and why I love German beer and why I love British beer and why I love any beer from not America is because they make it with their traditions and their history. And what I love about craft beer in America is we like, we need our traditions and our history for beer and let's go and strike out on our own. And that's what homebrewing did. And that's what homebrewing helped legalize. And then that's what homebrewing helped create the pipeline of was people getting from homebrew into pro brew and then across the masses. It probably is the most beautiful personification of what we can kind of define as Americanism and the American dream. And what's depressing about the moment is that we're not people, we're so divided into different camps that it's hard to learn from each other the things that we have to teach coming from different perspectives. And, you know, that's, that's problematic. You're right. I've hated bald people for my entire life. Yeah. But I, the well, day you I can't met, <laughs> trust them. Bald people and short people, well, really. Well, so, that's the thing, though, is I met you, Mike, and I realized mm -hmm. bald people aren't anything to be afraid of. <laughs> and in fact, I'm becoming bald by the day. It's actually not true. Be afraid. <laughs> be very afraid. Uh, what I've learned actually most recently is that babies terrify me. And if you've oh, heard, babies have always terrified me. If you've heard the screaming in the background, that is my child, and she is yelling at me vociferously because I will be punished later with a dirty diaper and an angry child while I try to put her to bed. It's interesting to look back on that history of homebrewing, and it looks really innocuous. And I don't think people cared so much at the time. It was the 70s, there were bigger problems. But I think it's also important to understand in, you know, as an attorney, I sometimes forget that there's a whole lot of this country right now that has lacked a solid civics education and doesn't fully get what it means for something to be legalized on a state level and not on a federal level. And federal law always trumps state law. So when we think about like marijuana legalization today, it's like this homebrewing thing. You know, they legalized homebrewing in California prior to when it was legal on a federal level, which meant that it was still illegal. You know, you could have still theoretically been uh, raided by the uh, ATF? ATF probably at the time. You know, that, that's the same situation that's going on today with marijuana. I mean, can you imagine today, Brett, if like running a craft brewery was something that you did that was only legal on a state level, but not legal on a federal level? Well, I wouldn't do it if that was the case. Yeah. It's just, yeah. But a lot of, but a lot of people are putting a lot of money and building a lot of fortunes on doing the same thing in marijuana. Well, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of fortunes because of that. Well, they could. They could. I mean, that, that's why those guys were so revolutionary. I mean, they were the first. And, and then, you know, it was legalized on a federal level shortly after that. So there yeah. was no, like, no extended period of time like there is today where, you know, there's been a decade that people have been putting money into uh, marijuana businesses that are still illegal. Yeah. The difference is there, though, is that th what's happening with cannabis is that businesses are getting involved. It's a lot different if you and I are just growing pot in our backyard. Because right. Right. the F, you know. I mean, which we're not, for the record. The, the AT that's, <laughs> those plants are, uh, <laughs> they may look like weed, but uh, no. <laughs> it's non THC hemp, I swear. Right. Yeah. But the ATF. We make shirts with it. <laughs> the, the ATF's not coming in to bust us, though, on, on the homebrew or home grower level. Right. But that's the difference. No one was opening up breweries in 1975 when it was legal in California and not federally. But people are opening up shops selling THC 
when it's not legally federally yet. So this is a huge difference, and I'm actually excited to see how it's going to develop. But th th this level of like people learning from the past and then just jumping to the conclusion and then big business getting involved and plowing money into it, it's not even giving a chance for upstarts to have cannabis growing clubs. Right. Right. So we're skipping a whole step here. So right. there's similarities, but there's also differences. And Wild differences. And I'm excited to see which direction it takes. They are radically different. But what those guys were doing back in the 70s kind of sets the stage not only for the craft beer scene, but what we're doing with cannabis today. Uh, and there are radical differences, but it's... Drugs you know, is drugs. Yeah, right. And it and enjoying drugs and good drugs are good drugs. I enjoy good drugs. <laughs> yeah. Well, cheers to that. Uh, cheers to Drew. Thank you cheers all to for Maltos Falcons. Wonderful thanks, Friday. Thanks for what you guys did for us. The Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast is a production of Bruce Guys Limited in association with 779, a leading video production and content creation agency. With over a decade of experience, 779 works with a wide range of clients, from global brands to boutique startups to mom-and-pop shops. Visit 779video.com for more information. That's the numbers 779video.com. This episode was edited by Dan Fennessy, who is also our executive producer. This podcast was engineered by Adam Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening.